Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, as we continue in this series on the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to read first a passage from John chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 20 through verse 33. John chapter 12, reading verses 20 through 33. Please stand. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was at Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And now turning over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the words of our Savior. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, this is a holy place, not because of this building or anything of such nature. It is because you are present with us by your Holy Spirit. And we enter into a holy task as we seek to handle the things of God, as we listen to your word, and even as we reflect upon the words of the eternal Son of God who took our nature upon himself and entered into this world that he might save us from our sins. And we take up holy work, Father, as we contemplate what does it mean to be the people of God and how we should pray and dress our Father in heaven and do so in a way that is fitting and appropriate and right to your great and awesome name. And so, Father, help us in these few moments when we take respite from this world and the busyness of this world and our work And we come simply to hear you speak to us from your word. Help us, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. 
Amen. It's a video I saw recently that took place at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And as some of you know, there is a, a famous switching of the guard that takes place there of these men that go back and forth. They are literally called sentinels. They are there to protect this place. And perhaps you've seen that once or twice somebody has unwisely tried to come from behind the fence. They could get a selfie or some picture and trespass. That's the word that's used, trespass, upon this this holy ground. And perhaps you've even seen where one of these sentinels does not speak in a whisper, does not speak in kind and gentle tones, but shouts at them that they have trespassed this special hallowed ground, that their behavior is completely inappropriate. They're profaning this very special place. There's a certain behavior that even the world recognizes is out of accord in a place that's, that's set apart like that. I suppose that uh, there's, there's certain types of behavior that we would not tolerate at Ground Zero at the World Trade Center. Or if you went to uh, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. These are places where we recognize that there's something special about this place. There's a certain reverence and, and respect that needs to be shown. But nothing compared to how one man was addressed at one point and told to remove his sandals, that he was standing on holy ground, a place where he, like others that came before and after him, assumed that he would die. There's something about the holiness of God in all things that are attached to him, most especially his name. And as we come to this particular petition, the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer, where our Lord is saying, it begins right here. Here's how you begin. You begin with his name. And so we'll look at this this morning. What is, it, what is it about God's name that we should understand? And then secondly, his hallowed name. And then last of all, as we consider the name of Christ. We have to begin by understanding there, there is a robust and very rich theology of the name of God that we don't have time to completely explore this morning, but there are certain things that we can say. And we begin by understanding that this is the heart of it, that God's name points to his very essence. It points to his nature. It points to who he is. This is who God is. And if that's true, then we are to treat his name in the way in which we treat God. But that name is perhaps the quickest path to his character, which speaks of his glory and his holiness. We exalt his name because we are supposed to exalt God. And in fact, you see these twin commands throughout Scripture, especially in in the Psalms, that we are commanded in Psalm 68, verse 4, to do what? To sing praises to his name. Why? Because we're also commanded to sing praises to God. Or like in Psalm 106, verse 47, we are to give thanks to his name. But we're also told to give thanks to to God. In Psalm 20, verse 7, we're told to trust in his name. Why? Because we're told to trust in God. We're to exalt the name, Psalm 34, 4, because we're to exalt God, and we are to glorify this name, Psalm 84, 86, verse 12, because we're to glorify God. It's one and the same thing. And indeed, the worship service began with Psalm 113, which is explicit about this. It says, praise the Lord, Praise the name of the Lord. These are the same commands. We're doing the same thing. To praise his name is to praise him. 
And therefore, it should not surprise us that when we read about what God does, that everything that he does points to the exaltation and to the glory of his name. Everything God does is for his name. Isaiah 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. But all of God's works, all of his wisdom, all of his power, all of his miracles, all these things, these, these are broadcasting, they're publishing and proclaiming his name. As we think of the Exodus itself, when God speaks to Moses to address Pharaoh, why has he raised up Pharaoh? He says, it's for this reason, I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's all for his name. Psalm 106 reflects upon the very same event that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Why did he do this? He says, for my name's sake. In Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, how does he begin? It says, he proclaimed his name. And Psalm 8 tells us that by creation, the name of the Lord is majestic in all the earth, that he set his glory above the heavens. And so God's name is holy. Why is it holy? You know the answer. Because God is holy. That he is excellent. Infinitely pure and perfect, exalted in his majesty. This is the God who cannot tolerate sin in his presence. This is a God who must not be profaned. He must not be made common. He must not be blasphemed or scorned. This is a God who will not share his glory with another. As Isaiah says, God dwells in the high and holy place. Isaiah was given a glimpse of that. He was given a glimpse of that in Isaiah 6, right? Before his calling. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And these seraphim, these angels in his presence, what are they doing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it is striking to us that the seraphim are doing what with two of their wings? They're covering their faces. Even these sinless, innocent Exalted creatures cannot look upon the holiness of God without shielding their faces. It helps us understand a little bit better, doesn't it? In Exodus 33, when Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, no, you cannot live and see my face. You cannot live and see my my glorious presence. And it's not just that there's something terrible about the holiness of God, there's something beautiful. We're often told to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness because he dwells in this resilience of of perfect splendor. There's something magnificent, something so sacred and wonderful about it. It It is beautiful. And so this is what we mean about God's name and that his name is holy because it reflects perfectly who he is. But there's something interesting in the way in which Christ casts this petition. Notice that the verb, hallowed, is in the passive. I know some of you are concerned that we're going to hit off in the grammar. It'll be just momentary (laughs) and painless. But we have to respect the contours of Scripture. Why would Christ put it this way? Why did he not simply begin by saying, your name is holy? And we recognize that and we confess it. That's not what he says. Hallowed 
be your name. Now this word hallow or hallowed is the same word from which we get the word holy or, or sanctity or sanctified, sanctification. All these words that come from the same word. And so hallowed here, it means something to be sanctified. It needs to be made holy. And you say, well, that's interesting. I thought you just told us it is holy. It is holy. And so he's saying something unique here. It needs to be made holy. There's a certain reverence that needs to be shown to his name. And so when he says, hallowed, be your name, he's saying there's a certain reverence that the name of God deserves because there's a certain reverence that God deserves. There's a certain way we need to treat this name, that the name is is something to be exalted. It has to be glorified. It has to be seen to be holy. Of course it's holy. But in everything you do, you need to, to see it as holy and make it holy. In Leviticus 22, God says, You must not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I need to be sanctified. There, God speaks of himself in the passive. And I think this is interesting because what God is saying that this is not just like any other name. Because this is just not any other person. In fact, we could have talked about the Ten Commandments this morning, that third commandment. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. You must not trivialize it. You must not take it in vain. Whatever you do, you cannot make this name common. You cannot make it trivial or empty. You cannot dishonor it or or disgrace it. In fact, what does God say? And if you do, I will not ignore it. I will never forget it. I will not let it go. In fact, I won't let you go unpunished. Such is his zeal for this holy name that needs to be sanctified. And you see what it brings us back to is what the Shorter Catechism says. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. It gets right to the heart of this, and that includes his name. Because it all has to begin here. This comes first. Before any talk about God's kingdom, before any talk about God's will, let alone those three petitions that have to do with you and me, it doesn't start with us. It starts with him, and it starts with his holiness. And this name that must be sanctified by his people, must be lifted up as he must be lifted up and worshipped. Now here's the sobering thing. If God's name will not be sanctified by his people, then God will do it himself. I'm just going to give you two examples of this this morning. We think of Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 20, there at Meribah. And we read in Scripture that the congregation of Israel came to the spot, they had no water, and the people began to do what? This is going to shock you, they were grumbling, right? We hear this refrain, they're grumbling, they're grumbling again, we have no water. Now we understand that, going without water is a big deal. So Moses and Aaron go to God and they pray to him with this need, the people of God need water. And God gives him instructions. He says, take the staff and tell the rock. Tell the rock to yield its water and the water will come. Very simple instructions. Tell the rock. And this has happened once before. So Moses knew how this works. Just look at the rock, tell the rock, and the water will come. Is that what Moses did? No. Moses says this, hear now you rebels. Shall we bring water out of this rock? And Moses struck the rock two times with his staff, and the water came out. 
Now, God had mercy upon Israel. They needed water, and the water came out. But what Moses did was terrible. And the Lord rebukes him. And he says, you did not believe in me. But notice what else he says. You did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. You did not cause my name to be sanctified. You did not cause me to be seen as holy and lifted up. And that's why you will not bring this assembly into the promised land. It is a harsh punishment. You will not bring this people into this holy land because you failed in this to cause me to be seen as holy. We have another incident, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. These are the sons of Aaron. They're serving as priests in the sanctuary of God. They've been given this incredible access. They are serving in the presence of God. But they did something very foolish. Just after the consecration ceremony, just as they had been purified as priests, the very first time this ceremony ever taken place, what did these two men do? They take fire that was not authorized. Something did not come from the holy altar. They put it in their censers and offered before the Lord something which he had not commanded. And what happens? Fire comes out from before the Lord and it consumes them and they die. By the way, the same language we get with Korah in his rebellion. They offered impure fire. God's fire is pure and it consumes it. But it's interesting what Moses says to Aaron. He says, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. What these two incidents are showing us is that we are praying that God would cause his name to be hallowed, and it will be hallowed one way or another. His name will be shown to be holy either through the salvation of his people or through judgment against those who are not. That name will be sanctified. One way or another, God will be praised either to the praise of his glorious grace and salvation or to the praise of his glorious justice in his judgment, in his righteous judgment. That's how significant this is. We can look at it this way as well. This is the one petition that you and I will pray for all eternity in heaven. When we get to heaven, we're not going to to pray, forgive us our debts. We won't need to pray that prayer any longer. There'll be no more sin in heaven. We won't need to come to God and say, give us this day our daily bread. We won't need that. There will be no such need for bread in heaven. We won't need to pray, deliver us from temptation. There'll be no temptation. But we'll always pray that the Lord would be glorified and that his name is holy, holy, holy. It's a sobering thing when we think of this this great name because it reflects a great God, this holy God. And it leads us, and perhaps the transition is not so clear to you right away, why we would treasure the name of Christ. Why is it that we love the name of Christ? It's because we love Christ. Why do we trust in the name of Christ? It's because we trust in Christ. And as we think of Christ, we see again that that he is going before us and he is not asking us to do anything that he does not do himself. Because as we look at the Gospels, what do we see? We see that Christ, his very joy is to do what? Is to do the will of his Father in heaven. 
His very oxygen, his meat and his drink, he says, is to do that will. It's to honor his father. It's to, it's to glorify his father. And it's significant that he says here, our father who is in heaven, heaven hallowed be your name. He's singling out the Father in here. This is his very delight. This is what he desired to do, to bring glory to the name of the Father, to do so in life and in death. This was everything for Christ. And it's interesting that we come to John 12, and here we have this this moment, one of these few windows into the soul of Christ, and that he shows us this terrific burden that is upon his shoulders. And he is inviting us to see the incredible distress that he feels in his heart. This is him at his weakest point, we could say. His most desperate place, like in the garden. And here he says in John 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's getting hard. Make it stop. Take it away. Deliver me from this terrible moment, this agonizing moment. Is that what he prays? And he says, no. He says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Everything that is about to unfold in his terrible suffering in the garden, where his soul will be squeezed like in a vice, where darkness and evil will press down upon him, the agony he'll suffer upon the cross, all of this, all of this, he says, It is encaptured by these words, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified it. And there I think it's referring to the earthly ministry of Christ and his impending death. And he says, I will glorify it again, perhaps suggesting the triumphant resurrection of Christ. But is it not interesting that Christ could summarize the culmination of, of his work in these few words, Father, glorify your name. Is this not the very refrain that we hear in the Old Testament that's picked up even by the prophets for the name of God to be sanctified and to be glorified? Is this not what Christ is saying? This man who loved the Father's name because he loved the Father more than all things. And more than anything else, he desired for his Father to be honored and to be praised and and to be loved, and he would do everything and anything necessary to procure that glory for his father. There was nothing he was unwilling to do to make sure that the father's name would be hallowed. And so what does he do? He humbles himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, that he might bring glory to his father. It's not just that he does this, he does this in obedience. In perfect obedience, he does this with joy in his heart. He does this out of love for his Father, out of zeal for the glory of that name that he loved more than any other name. And so how does the Father respond to this perfect sacrifice, to this magnificent display of obedience, to the substitutionary death that procures the forgiveness of sins, and to this powerful resurrection. What does it say in Philippians 2? That It says this, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what Paul is saying in this passage, God will cause that name of Christ to be hallowed one way or another. 
There are those who confess it now in faith. But there are those who will confess it on the day of the Lord in fear. Either to the praise of his glorious grace in Christ or to the praise of his glorious justice by him who will separate the sheep from the goats. His name is holy. His name will be hallowed. It will be sanctified. There is no other greater name. Ephesians 1.20 says, The Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and power, dominion, and, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Why is that the case? It's because the name points to the person. It reflects the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just his name, but it's Christ who is exalted above all things. That's why we hallow this name. Somebody may be in their mind is thinking, well, what's in it for me? And I'm thinking, you have really bad timing on your questions. But it is a fair question. And perhaps it's a question that reveals insight into what does the name of Jesus mean? Salvation is in the name of Christ because salvation is in the person and the work of Christ. The name Jesus means salvation. We don't just hallow this name. We don't just sanctify this name. We believe in this name. We love this name. The angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1, regarding the birth of Christ, said, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that's why we say to people when we share the gospel, we say, believe in the name of Christ. Why? Because it's to believe in Christ himself. As it says in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. To confess that name of Christ is to, is to trust in Christ, to trust in him to be delivered from sin and death, and that's a promise given to us in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's why we honor the name of Christ in this place. It's because all that we are and all that we have is in his name. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as I I prayed earlier, we assemble in the name of Christ, 1 Corinthians 5.4. We believe in the name of Christ. We repent, Acts 2.38, in the name of Christ. We're baptized into the name of Christ. Healing is found in the name of Christ, Acts 3.6. We pray in the name of Christ. We seek God's throne in the name of Christ. We give thanks in the name of Christ. You and I are united by the name of Christ. We have life in the name of everything we have. It's in this name. All that we live for, everything worth dying for, is found in this name. The wonderful joy that we have in this day is to be able to escape just for a few hours. The busyness of the former week in which everything we did reflected upon our name. The resume that we submitted, our job performance, our grades all reflect upon how well we're upholding our name. And it's so exhausting But in all of this, we're reflecting upon his name. When we come to this place, it's not just to be reminded that we hallow its name. It's also to be reminded what we have in this name. So everything we do, all of our service, our obedience, our our prayers, our living holy lives, all of our good works, 
ultimately is so that the name of Christ would be confessed and loved and exalted and praised and glorified. This is our great honor that the name of Christ is upon us and that we belong to Christ. But it's also what we gain. In Galatians 3, it says, All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Which reminds us it's not just his name that clothes us. It's Christ himself. That we are united to him. And all that he has accomplished for us. That we are baptized into the name of Christ because we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. The scripture says we have died with Christ We have been crucified with Christ and buried with Christ. We are raised with Christ, made alive with Christ. We are made righteous and holy in Christ. That we have been justified and sanctified in the name of Christ. That we are united to Christ in his name. Because we're united to him in his righteousness, even his holiness. That everyone who believes in Christ... How does our Father in heaven see us? Not just those who've been made right, who are justified and forgiven of their sins, but we are seen as sanctified. We can even say hallowed in the sight of Christ. Why is that the case? Because when our God looks upon us, what does he see? He sees his son, the son in whom he delights, the son in whom he looked with great delight in his soul upon all that he did in his death and resurrection, said, this is my son, and I've given to him the name that is above every name. And along with him, I give all those for whom he died and was raised. That they might share in his eternal glory. This is an amazing thought to end with this morning. Moses was told to remove his sandals as he was standing on holy ground. Do you know where you and I will stand one day? What do we confess? What do we believe? We will stand in the presence of God. If the gospel is true, we believe it's true, we will do so without fear, without blemish, without sin. How is that possible? It's because we've been washed clean. We will stand before him in white robes, clothed in the name of of Christ, forever and ever blessing that name of the one who died for us and was raised for us and exalted us to be with him in glory. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Father, for the practical instruction that Christ gave to his disciples when they asked him how How can we pray? How should we pray? And he answered, and we've heard this answered this morning, that our prayer should begin with the glory of God. They should begin by asking that you would cause your name to be sanctified and made holy by your people. And so, Father, we thank you that we can bring this petition in the name of Christ and help us, Father, to do so. And to see all that this means, especially for you and for the glory of our exalted King, but also what that means for us as those whom he loves. Help us in all these things, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.